Um, if you'll grab your bulletin, uh, I want to show you a couple things. Uh, we are in the middle of our series about uh, who we are as our church in terms of uh, vision and mission uh, and where we're headed. So uh, look there uh, at our mission. I want you to uh, say it with me. I'll get us started. Uh, bringing the person and work of Jesus Christ to bear in every area of our lives and our community. And remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, that there was this huge crowd of 5,000 people. Jesus wanted to feed them. And uh, I, we know, I mean, if you've been anywhere near uh, Christian subculture at all, you know uh, that Jesus multiplied two fish and five loaves in defeating 5,000 people. But what you may not know is that he made the disciples go gather that. And they, know, they knew that wasn't enough. And so as we talk about our mission, that it's real easy to think like, okay, our church is just about us and our community, or it's just about the work we're doing outside the walls of this church. But what happened in that miracle is that, yes, Jesus cared about the crowd, those on the outside in many ways, but he also cared about those on the inside because he wanted to increase the faith of the 12 disciples. I think both groups were equally astonished at the end of that day. All right. That was our mission. Look at our vision. Say that with me. For all souls in and around downtown Lexington to flourish in a community that is rooted in Jesus Christ, compelled by his gospel, and strives for a more beautiful and just city. That, uh, th that week we looked at Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7, and that the people were in Babylon, and that God calls them to do the normal things of life, family, and work and committing to a place, a place that they knew wasn't their own. <laughs> They're in Babylon, not in Jerusalem. And he says, if you work for the welfare of that city, Babylon, it will be your welfare too. And so as we commit to our place in and around downtown, we do it with these mundane tasks of work and family and committing to place that we might see a new city come to bear here because we, not, we know it's not just good for our neighborhood, it's good for us too. All right? Uh, that was our vision. And last week we just talked about mission as a, we just talked about doing, uh, doing mission as a whole. We talked about loving people and listening to them and contextualization and all this through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And today uh, we're going to look at part of who lives in and around downtown Lexington. In and around downtown Lexington, if you think about it, if you've been here any period of time, here's what's in and around downtown Lexington. Skeptics, lots of them. The most unchurched parts of our city, maybe even our state, are within two miles of our church. So if you want to find unchurched people in Kentucky, you're in the perfect place. <laughs> right here. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Next week we're going to talk uh, about serving the poor. And we know that right in and around uh, our neighborhood are the poor. That we, this is not just an idea or people who live far away, but there are people right here. Or disadvantaged on so many levels. And I think as we talk about the poor, we'll see ourselves there too. We too are poor. And then we'll talk about relating to those who are different than us. That this is, for Kentucky, one of the most uh, diverse places in terms of ethnicity in and around downtown Lexington. And so that's the work of our church. We're not just addressing these issues because they're, they're hot-button issues. We're not just doing it because that's what millennials and Generation Z or X or whatever generation it is care about. We're doing it because those are the actual people in and around downtown Lexington. So, all I'd say, we're talking about the lost, and we're trying to do Mark 2. So let's read verses 1 to 12. 
together. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say immediately, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. All right. So today we're going to look at three groups of people and how they relate to Jesus. The first, we're going to look at the paralytic, how the paralytic related to Jesus. The second, we're going to look at the religious leaders and how they related to Jesus. And then we're going to look at the four friends and how they related to Jesus. All right? So let's look at the paralytic. The paralytic, we don't know if he's paralyzed because he was born that way. We don't know if he was paralyzed because of some accident that he had experienced. But we do know that he has friends who we're going to get to later. And that he was able to get an audience with Jesus because his four friends cared about him. And I'm sure the expectation of those four friends, the expectations of the paralytics, and the, and, the, and the expectation of us as we read this passage is that Jesus is going to restore the man's ability to walk. But that's not what happens. Instead, in verse 5, you see what Jesus does. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're the healed man... What would you be thinking in that very instance? Well, if I were the healed man, the one who had just been forgiven of sins, I'd be thinking, Jesus, I didn't come here today to get my sins forgiven. I came here to receive a physical healing. Now hear me. Jesus, I mean, I'm glad you forgave my sins. I'm pro-forgiveness. But I have a more urgent, immediate problem here. I can't move. I'm paralyzed. But Jesus has a different take than the one I would have. Jesus seems to think that this man's most basic, most fundamental need is for him to be in right relationship with God. Now, you might be here today and put yourself in the paralyzed person's shoe, and you can do so quite easily. Because your felt need, the one that dominates your thinking more more than your need for forgiveness, that might be you. You might have come in today and you're suffering from some kind of physical malady. It really, truly wrecks your life. And maybe you couldn't say this, but maybe unconsciously your assumption is 
that your life would go and be normal if Jesus would heal this physical malady. If Jesus would heal this physical malady in your life, it'd be proof that he really cared for you. But let me ask you a question. What happens when you get sick again? See, eventually all of us, we're going to get sick, then we're going to die, and then we're going to have to stand before God. Or maybe you come in today and your felt need is not necessarily a physical disease like it was in Mark 2. But maybe it's some other kind of pain. Maybe it's a kind of pain that stems from being the victim of the sin of others. And you want Jesus to do something about that. Because it's left a mark on you. So it seems really insensitive for Jesus to tell you that your sins need to be forgiven... Because you're the one who's been wronged. But if this is the case, then what you need to do is that you need to be able to extend forgiveness to the person, otherwise you'll be bitter. And when you're bitter due to unforgiveness, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You ever heard that? Because in the end, you're the one who dies because of your resentful heart. So you have to be able to forgive the other person. And you're not going to be able to forgive the other person until you experience forgiveness yourself. And the good news of Christianity is that Jesus died to be able to offer you forgiveness. But I need to be really clear about something. If you're the victim of abuse, I'm not saying that you need to go and apologize to your abuser. I'm not saying that at all. You shouldn't. But you do need to realize that while you're a victim, you're also a villain. Because you too have sinned before God and he's granted you forgiveness. And when you know this, really know this, really have experienced this, you'll have the emotional wealth that you'll need to forgive those who have wronged you. Now maybe neither of these character church are you. Maybe you didn't come in here with a physical malady. Maybe you didn't come in here knowing that you have this deep emotional mental need that's caused by the sin of other people. Maybe you come in here today and you don't feel guilty over your sin at all. If that's the case, I wouldn't be surprised because we're blind to our sin. We're self-deceived, especially when it comes to the sin of greed. So that'd be the first reason I wouldn't be surprised if you don't feel guilty over your sin. The second reason I wouldn't be surprised is that our culture says that guilt is this socially constructed, person-specific thing. Our culture says that there's no consensus, there's, there's no consensus in our culture about what's right and what's wrong. But We do have this sense of shame. We do have this sense of inadequacy that lurks in the deepest parts of our souls. And we know deep down that it's not our parents' fault. We know deep down that it's not our culture's fault. We know that we have not met the standard of justice or love or purity that we have set even for ourselves. And the consequence of that is that we live with this nag, this nag of what I call not enoughness. 
been trying not to read my phone at night before I go to bed. Any of you have that problem? And uh, so I've just been picking up the good old-fashioned book. And uh, instead of reading articles on my phone, and, um, and I've picked up this book uh, by a journalist. His name is David Halberstam. He's written a bunch of different stuff. You can look him up. But I've, I, I'm in book two of his stuff, and I've just loved it. Um, but this book is about uh, baseball. It's called The Teammates. And he wrote this book uh, about four uh, baseball players who played for the Boston Red Sox, Red Sox in the first half of the 20th century. And one of those four Red Sox is one of the most famous baseball players to ever live. His name is Ted Williams. Ted Williams is known for his hitting. In fact, he was the last person to hit 400. If you hit 400 in baseball, that means you get a hit 40% of the time. And he did this 80 years ago. Nobody's done it since. And what part of the book looks at with Ted Williams is how obsessed he is with the art of hitting. His friends, the other three guys that played with him all these years, they talked about how he practiced hitting constantly. That when he was on the train, he would pick up pillows and practice his swing to perfect it. That was when he was in, uh, was he, when he was in the dugout. Was he in the locker room? He'd find a broom. Swing a broom. They talked about how particular he was about the kind of bat he would use in games. And then they talk about how particular he was about everything. Not just hitting, but in retirement, fishing. And we talked about he was particular about cleaning to a fault. And very few people outside of these three friends got along with him. Media and management thought he had a prickly personality. It was hard to understand. He was divorced three times and his fourth wife was by common law. And what Halberstam does in part of his book is he explores the connection between his prickly personality and his obsession with hitting. And here's what he writes. He says, Ted hated failure. It was more threatening to him than for most men. His secret truth was that he needed to be great in order to escape from the terrible family he grew up in. He had been raised by an alcoholic father and a religiously strident mother who was out on the streets all hours of the night for the Salvation Army. She seemed to care more about orphans than her own two sons. Ted was always fighting the shame of his background. End quote. And as I've read about him in this book, it seems like that there, something was off. And something that was off is that what he was trying to do was atone for the pain in his life with achievement. And it didn't work. The older he got, the crankier he got. Because he was bound, because he had been drinking the poison. And he was ashamed his whole life. See, guilt and shame, they're indelible. They're like stains that won't come out. And there's only one thing that'll take the stain out. The forgiveness offered by Jesus. See, what you need and what I need is that we need Jesus to look at us and say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. 
One of the strange parts about this text to me is that this healed man never speaks. He never says a word. He never repents. At least it doesn't seem like it. And one of the cardinal rules of the Bible is that salvation is never granted without repentance. Only repentant people are forgiven. Forgiveness requires repentance. So how was this paralyzed man forgiven? I'm using my redemptive imagination here. And I think that he had this unexpressed, inarticulate posture of repentance, and that was enough for Jesus. See, Jesus is trigger-happy to extend mercy. He's outlandish with his, this resource. He's ready to dump it on your head at the slightest hint of repentance. And when you know that's the heart of Jesus, you'll come to him. And here's how I know that this is his heart. Hebrews 12 said it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And the cross is all about forgiveness. The cross is all about that Jesus is the one who had to extend forgiveness because our sins, in the end, though they affect other people, they're against God, our creator. And that's why he had to die. And he died, yes, it was necessary, but he did so for joy. He did so willingly. And he did so because he loved you. And he loved this paralyzed man. That's why I forgave him. But his love went deeper, didn't it? He healed him too. <laughs> and that shouldn't surprise us. Even though forgiveness is your most fundamental need, it's my most fundamental need, it doesn't nullify that the fall extends to our bodies. Physical and spiritual healing belong together. And when you put them all together, it shows you the scope of Jesus' ministry. He wants to bring his kingdom to our bodies and our souls. That means evangelism and feeding the hungry are equally important. Pre preaching the word, addressing social issues go hand in hand. So Jesus quite possibly cares about your felt need. You came in here, what you wanted Jesus to do for you when you came to church today, Jesus very well wants to do for you. He wants to help you in your marriage. He wants to help you pay your bills. He wants to heal your sickness. Because all those things will be taken care of in the new heavens and the new earth. And Mark gives us a hint of this new heavens and new earth when he says, get up to the man on the mat. The only other time Mark uses the word, get up, is when Jesus is raised from the dead. So as far as the curse is found is how far Jesus will go to bring healing into the world. All right, Jesus, that's Jesus and the paralytic. Let's talk about Jesus and religious leaders. That was the longest one, by the way. These other two are going to be shorter. <laughs> but you know, the paralyzed man, he's at the center of the story, so you've got to spend time on that, brother. All right, let's look at the religious leaders. The religious leaders uh, in Mark 2, they're called scribes, and they're deeply disturbed by what Jesus does here. When Jesus pronounces forgiveness to them, they instantly question Jesus in their hearts. That's what the text says. But why are they so mad? Well, the reason that they're so mad is because Jesus is claiming to be God without saying it directly. I mean, look what happens here. Only God can forgive sin, and Jesus forgives sin. Only God could read their minds. 
they didn't say that the quotes in the passage that come from the scribes, they're not what they said, it's what they were thinking. Jesus knew what they were thinking because he could read their minds. So he must be God. And so the scribes, uh, they're at a crossroads. They can choose to reject Jesus and question him or they can submit to him. And they reject him. They don't fit the mold of what the Messiah is supposed to be in their minds. They expect the Messiah to come from an impressive pedigree. They expect the, 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 they expect the Messiah to not just treasure the Old Testament, but also to treasure the oral traditions that came with the Old Testament through the years of Jewish history. And that, those oral traditions are what the scribes essentially had PhDs in. And when Jesus doesn't mention them, in fact, kind of belittles the oral traditions of the Old Testament, it really makes them mad. Because as long as they're the top dogs, as long as they are in control, that's what they're concerned about. Because what they can do is that they can manage religion based on principles instead of being centered on a person, the person of Jesus. And if you think you're any different, you're fooling yourself. If you're a church person, and most of us are, we have more than a puncher's chance of having some scribe in our blood. Because here's what happens over the years as we're in church. We turn into principal people. And what I mean by a principal person is that we live according to certain ways of being that are about our ability to live those principles out. It's our way of maintaining control. It's our way of maintaining control of ourselves and of our community. But the church, the church of Jesus, is about him. It's about a person. And what Jesus wants to get you off of are all your self-sufficient ways. And as long as you can keep your principles on your own and not have to trust in Jesus, Jesus thinks it's his job to challenge that inner curmudgeon in you. And so we're all more than capable of this. We're all more than capable of opposing Jesus, of resenting his work, and criticizing his people. Especially if you've been into the church for a while. The last group, the four friends. you got to give these four guys credit, don't you? I mean, there, there's no barrier that's presented to them that's going to prevent them from getting their friend to Jesus. The house with too many people in it? No problem. We're just going to climb the roof and dig a hole in it. It didn't matter that the house wasn't theirs. It doesn't matter that they didn't ask permission and essentially vandalize private property. It all didn't matter because their friend needed help. And you see that how bad, they, you can see the help that they wanted to give them. Look at verse 5 where it says, when G, this is, um, verse 5 says, When he saw their, their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. What do you expect the text to say there? When he saw your or his, talking to the paralytic. But he doesn't say that. He says there. So the there stands for the friends. And I think that that means that the faith of the paralytic's friends has something to do with the paralytic's healing. Do you have those kind of friends? 
having these kinds of friends is so important. It's so important that the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, here's what he says. He says the most prevalent issue in our country is not cancer, heart disease, or obesity. It's isolation. This isn't a psychologist. This is the Surgeon General of the United States. The Surgeon General of the United States thinks that it's our lack of friends that's the biggest health issue in our country. And it's not hard to see some of the reasons why our isolation exists, is it? And I think one of the reasons is found in the very nature of friendship itself. Friendship is optional. You don't get to choose your parents. You don't get to choose your kids. And in many ways, you can't opt out of your marriage once you get in it. But friends are a different story. You can choose to get in. And you can choose to get out. And you will choose to get out of your friendships by shortchanging them when you get busy. You'll choose your job and you'll choose your children every single time over your friends. Here's what my favorite theologian, Bono, says about friendship. He says, friendship is higher than love. Sometimes it's less glamorous and passionate, but it's deeper and wiser. At the heart of my marriage is a friendship. At the heart of our band is friendship. At the heart of my relationship with my hometown is friendship. It's almost like there are two sacraments, music and friendship. Now, if you're a Christian, you know that's true. Because as you tell your conversion story, you have friends. <laughs> you have people. That very few of us were converted solely through the presentation of written or verbal gospel materials to us. Most of us can trace a team of people who have carried us to Jesus. For me, it's my parents, my grandparents. It was the local church that I grew up in as a child. As I grew in my faith, I can point to a really good friend I had in college named Gabe. I can point to two of my seminary professors. I can point to the pastors and the people at TCPC. And I can point to many of you. Scores and scores of people have seen my need to Jesus and they've taken me to him. Who's taken you? Or from another angle, who are you taking to Jesus that needs healing? Well, if you're a parent, Nathan and Cassie, I hope you're thinking of your kids. But for all of us, I hope we're all thinking about our coworkers, our neighbors, our old college and high school buddies. But how do you bring people to Jesus? Well, you don't have to start by bringing them to church. You don't have to start by giving them the Bible. Might not be a bad idea, but you can invite them to hang out. Ask them questions about their lives. Share your stuff with them. And as a relationship begins to build, as trust begins to be established, you'll be able to tell what kinds of questions that your friends are asking. They may not ask them explicitly, but you can begin to hear 
them ask questions like, what's life all about? What's my purpose here? What's wrong with the world? What's going to make our world better? As you walk through life, you'll begin to suffer. And they need to see you struggle, like we talked about Nathan and Cassie. And as you walk through life with them, they will suffer. And you'll have the opportunity to point them to Jesus. But I think the best way to bring people to Jesus is prayer. I hope, my dream is for our church that instinctively at the front of your mind at all times there are three or four people that you are longing for Jesus to convert. My hope for our church is that we grow by conversion, that we see our children come to faith, that we see our unchurched, de-churched, disinterested, skeptical, seeking, cynical, lost friends come to Jesus. Because we've been faithful to pray for them. Because we've been faithful to spend time with them. And ultimately because the Holy Spirit has moved in their lives and drawn them to treasure Christ. And this is hard work, friends. It's impossible work. Those three to four people at the front of my mind, in many ways it would shock me. Not just if they were converted, but if they even walked in these doors. I know it seems impossible. And that's why most churches opt for a different strategy than to grow by conversion. Most churches develop this strategy with parents to take discipleship from them instead of leading the parents to be healthy gospel people. Because it's easier for churches to rely on programs for the children. You see it all the time as churches, they want to make worship services and their marketing and even use their denomination to help grow their churches But if you do that, you're just getting church people to come in. And all that's really manageable. (laughs) But conversion growth is hard. It means you have to pray. And I hope we all do it and that we do it together. I've been thinking, think about those four guys and their newly forgiven, (laughs) newly walking friend. They walked from somewhere, right? Can you imagine the conversation they had walking away from that crowded house? I I personally, I don't think they talked very much. I think their eyes were about this big. And I think at some point in the conversation, they looked at one another and they said, who else can we bring? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, um, all of us, some of us, they're, they're, they're family members <laughs> that we just, we long to come to know you. Some of us have neighbors that we uh, love deeply, that we long to get to know you. Uh, but Lord, I, I pray that you would burden us with that, not, not so that we just feel bad, um, but so that we might pray and that we might see a miracle like these four friends did. We pray these things in your name. Amen.